This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, speaking today with David Grand, the author of three novels, Laos, The Disappearing Body, and the brand new Mount Terminus, which takes place at the intersection of two births, you might say. One, one is the birth of cinema, as we know it. One is the birth of Los Angeles, as we know it. Now, I, I, just, I say Los Angeles, and reviewers talk about Los Angeles, and... The jacket copy talks about Los Angeles, but David, tell me if I'm correct on this. The words Los Angeles are never mentioned in this in the text of the book, right? Yes, that's right. Um, yes, I, I, I never use the words Los Angeles. There are some place names uh, you know, throughout the novel that I think locate us in L.A., but, um, but no, I, I don't use the words Los Angeles. Now, what does it afford you to set a novel in a city that is Los Angeles but is not named as Los Angeles? Well, um, it gave me a great deal of freedom to invent my own version of L.A. Mm. I, I think that um, one of the problems I've had writing about Los Angeles in the past is that, you know, I, I grew up in L.A. Um, I, I moved there when I was uh, eight years old and uh, was there until I was in my mid-20s, which you know, brings us to the mid-90s. Mm. And Los Angeles was always very difficult as a, you know, as a concept for me to tackle in fiction, um, because it's just such a huge sprawling mass and, uh, it's so diverse with so many different communities. And I, <laughs> the only way that I could really kind of conquer it all in this big sweeping story that I tell, um, was to sort of start peeling back those, uh, those layers of history and to shrink the landscape, um, and, uh, just to simplify it. Uh, so, I mean, that's essentially what I did. Um, you know, in my mind, the story takes place at, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, um, when, there was just that downtown area that was mostly developed along the, the Los Angeles River. And at least in, you know, in my mind and the research that I did, so much of the, um, you know, of the city to, to the West was, uh, was, you know, was largely untouched. Um, so I, I, I don't know, I just, I just found myself very comfortable with the, with, with the silence and the pristine landscapes. When did this vision of an empty Los Angeles first appeal to you or, or first present itself to you even? I mean, when did, it's not something, emptiness is just not a quality that we associate with Los Angeles now, of course. It's a word that comes up in the book, but what, what led you to first envision an empty or nearly so Los Angeles? Um, well, I, I think there were a number of factors when I started conceiving the book. Uh, you know, as I said, I wanted to tell a story set in, in LA. And, um, and then I became incredibly fascinated with the, uh, advent of, um, the new, uh, cinema technology of, of that era, you know, going back to still photography. And even before that, I was looking at, um, you know, a lot of, uh, pre-cinematic history. Um, and so when I, when I started concentrating on those, uh, on those aspects of the story, on the technology of the day, you know, I, I realized, oh, um, you know, here we have uh, the birth of the art form uh, that would fuel the economy of the city for, you know, for now over a century. And, um, and then there's the, you know, the birth of the city itself. You know, there was that I think, uh, like 1890s boom and bust in the real estate market. And then, um, you know, it's not until, uh, Mulholland brings water to LA that the, that the population, you know, really starts to boom again. Now we have plenty of, of water issues to talk about, of course, here. But first, <laughs> just on the, on the cinema thing for a moment more. What, what is it? What, you, you, you mentioned that, you mentioned the importance of cinema to Los Angeles. And from the time Mount Terminus is set, until now, I mean, do you see this city? Do you see Los Angeles as somehow continuously defined by the presence of the the film industry? It it seems like to, these days I rarely encounter it, and I and I live here. But is do you see it differently? Do you see it as some part of the the Los Angeles, at least of the imagination that you can't take away? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I can't speak, you know, I, I can speak in, I, I'm not sure if I feel comfortable speaking in those general terms. I can tell you what it means to me. Of course. Please do. Um, you know, yeah. When I mean, when I was, I mean, when I was a kid growing up in LA, I, um, you know, I mean, I, I was fascinated with, you know, with that aspect, aspect of, of LA. I used to play um, soccer in Rancho Park and across the street, I would see the, you know, the tips of the, uh, of the facades, um, you know, outside the gates of, uh, of the Fox studios. And in, you know, and I used to go to Universal Studios when we would have family visiting and we would take these tours. Um, and really that's, you know, I, I didn't have much access to, to the industry beyond, beyond that, but somehow, in my childhood imagination, the those you know the studio backlot kind of um, you know it it, uh, it expanded into the architecture of the city, into all of this kind of mis- mismatched you know mismatch of an of architecture, you know throughout the city. Um, there was you know that there's this. Uh, not you know there's this aspect of like you know that LA was um you know was young and uh, and built up from uh from the whims of uh of of new money you know entering <laughs> entering the city so um i don't know in in i i think my my writerly imagination is oftentimes, you know, fueled by this, uh, this idea, you know, this fantasy that I have of the studio backlot. Uh, and I would even suggest that, uh, you know, if you look at my two earlier novels, um, you know, they're, they're also kind of like backlot novels, you know, I mean, I, I like inventing these, uh, these, these worlds that, that, you know, that could kind of exist on a soundstage. I like that a young person's imagination is such a part of that story you tell. I mean, in this case, it's your imagination that's filling in the details of what could be going on in these backlots in the city you're growing up in. Because, you know, the imagination of a young person is so important to Mount Terminus. The imagination specifically of the main character, known as, known as Bloom, uh, he, he of course gets involved in the film business as it develops in the Los Angeles, not called Los Angeles, that is also developing. It, it seems, it seemed to me coming to the end of his novel that the, that imagination was really, Really, the scarce, the scarce substance in the world of this book. Water was scarce, but imagination, true imagination, seemed even harder to come by. Does that make any sense to you in terms of your novel, of the, the scarcity of imagination, uh, something you might think about writing or reading this book? Um, I, well, <laughs> I, it, it's something that I, I haven't really thought about, um, the scarcity of imagination, that is, but I, 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 I I did spend a great deal of time trying to develop the imagination of uh, of Bloom, mm. um, but I but I do appreciate what you're saying. Uh, I mean, there there certainly is a, a theme working through the novel of this um, uh, of, of of commerce and art going head to head to some degree. But I I mean I don't, I don't think I treat that. Uh, in, in an over serious um, manner, um, but I do think that there is, you know, that certainly does exist. Uh, but I think my efforts were mostly uh, um, on, uh, you know, creating the the rich imagination of a of a complicated person, of a complicated character. And it's a rich imagination. It's it's it's, it's Bloom's rich imagination that Bloom's brother Simon applies to film. Simon is the businessman of the family, the uh, the mogul in training, the film mogul in training, you might say, or he soon becomes quite a film mogul. It's very much the what we think of of the early 20th century's Los Angeles film moguls, but he recognizes the value of Bloom's imagination, an imagination he's cultivated on the, in this estate, Mount Terminus, up on the hill, overlooking essentially nothing for quite a while before, before this Los Angeles is built. And yeah, it it could have been an old story, an old Los Angeles story of the imagination sort of exploited by the mogul. But yeah, it's, it's not that. You know, reading your book, I was very relieved to find that it wasn't that. It's something more complicated. And I mean, I, I think of it this way. Simon, Simon the mogul, the, the family mogul, the, the half-brother, the lo, lo, not long lost, but for a while there lost uh, or separated half-brother. I mean, he he is not a classically unimaginative money man. He, he, 
himself, he, he's imagining building Los Angeles, right? He's, he's imagining something in a way even grander than Bloom imagines with his films. Is he not? Uh, yes, he does. <laughs> you know, I mean, I always, you know, thought of uh, Simon as being somewhat of a, of a renaissance man. Mm. And I, um, you know, I... Uh, I mean, I realize that I that I make Simon, you know, a, a, an incredibly <laughs> intriguing character, um, and you know, I mean, I uh, I know I understand that there's been um, you know quite a bit written about uh, you know maybe not developing uh, you know that aspect of the story or or, or concentrating my efforts on Simon's character, um, but uh, you know, I, I did that very intentionally. I feel as if the you know the story of the mogul, the story of the of the developer, you know, no, no matter how uh, fascinating, is you know is a story that's uh, overexposed, especially um, you know within the frame of uh, of Los Angeles and stories about Los Angeles. And this this also this applies in a few different directions, but Bloom's father invents a device called, or a component called the Rosenblum drive, which proves very important to early cinema. It's, without it, it seems, uh, film could not be projected in a way that people could watch it and believe in the actions going on in front of them that are really just frame by fr- one frame of, of light at a time. This, this mechanism, the Rosenblum drive, allows these images to move smo- uh, smoothly and believably, and this, this, it works very profitably for him, which means that Bloom is bequeathed uh, the the resources to be able to live in this estate, Mount Terminus, in some sense, if not fully literally at the beginning, in some sense walled off, certainly separated from the rest from the rest of society. I mean, such as as it even exists in Los Angeles at that time. Do you do you see that kind of isolation as uh, how to put it as something necessary? For the kind of imagination Bloom has, um, I don't know if it's necessary. As, I think it was necessary for 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 Bloom, mm. <laughs> you know, for, for 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 Bloom's character. Um, he feeds off of that isolation in a way that some of us might, some of us might really not. Right. Well, I mean, the the idea was when when I started out. Um, uh, was to was to cre- you know construct a character who was very comfortable um, in that isolation. I don't know if Bloom even considers the isolation um, you know a form of alienation or if he would consider himself lonely in that space. I think he thrives uh, you know in in that place of isolation. So when his father tells him that we're going to live a life apart at the beginning of the novel. Um, you know, it. Uh, I, I think that moment uh, registers, but mm. it, um, it. It's not. Uh, it, it's not coming as a, as any form of punishment. I think uh, Bloom is very comfortable in those uh, those quiet, pristine spaces, and of course, as when Simon enters the picture and the landscape starts to change and the world begins to develop, uh, there, there's a there's a growing sense of uh, of unease. And there's something. There's something about this that resonates with at least the historical books I've read about the early development, at least the development in the early 20th century of Los Angeles, because you know there was so much boosterism going on, as you well know, with Los Angeles at that time, and much of the implication of that, of the way Los Angeles was sold in the early 20th century seemed to be, here is a place where you can, you can live in your own form of isolation, you can be in a city yet outside of society somehow. I mean, it, there, was a, there was a sense in which Los Angeles then was pitched as a way for everybody to be their own version of Bloom, was it not? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. Um, I, think I, I think I began with that, um, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I began with that, you know, that general idea that... Um, Earlier we were talking about uh, you know, both you know the isolation and um, and and you know why I felt compelled to uh, to write a story you know set in an empty landscape you know to sort of you know, peel back the layers of history and um, and, and wipe away uh, you know, the architectural development of the entire city and I, and I think it goes back to this 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 
this basic feeling I had when I was growing up, you know, which was this blissful state of alienation I always kind of <laughs> experienced when I was, uh, you know, when I was just driving around LA and, and then later when I, when I grew up and became more of an adult and my, my friends were, you know, say living in West Hollywood and I was in, um, you know, in Silver Lake, uh, or, you know, living in um, the Pacific Palisades, you know, which is, we just felt so, you know, so distant from each other. It felt like such a chore to get in the car and just, you know, to kind of, you know, create those kinds of intimate connections one, you know, one needs, uh, you know, in, in their daily mundane life. Um, and, and so, you, you know, it's like you, yes, on the one hand, uh, you, you know, you have all of this kind of open space afforded to you and, um, you know, you have these beautiful landscapes and there's the, the promise of, um, of, of, uh, just feeling that, uh, you know, that kind of freedom one tends to feel, um, in, in California where you're, you're just dazzled by, you know, the landscape and the weather and the, you know, the light of Southern California in particular. Um, but then there's that, you know, that, that other aspect to life that I feel goes, you know, incredibly unfulfilled. Um, now I, you know, uh, that, that, that was the, you know, that was the kernel. Um, but I, you know, I, I very much wanted, you know, my character Bloom to, you know, to fit in mm. <laughs> into that space, into that, you know, into that open space, you know, uh, content with those feelings of isolation <laughs> and, uh, you know, and happy to, um, you know, and to happy to, and happy to, you know, to grow into it. Um, yeah, the in, in Los Angeles of your youth and the Los Angeles of Bloom's youth, and we never see him as anything but youthful, really. What is what is the same about those two Los Angeleses? Is it purely the geography, purely the light, purely factors like that, or is anything else retained from his Los Angeles to yours, the one you grew up in? Um, I mean, I think there's a you know that there is a state of mind that I you know that 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 was my own that I transferred. Uh, to Bloom's character, um, most certainly, you know, there, I, I mean, you know, as I was saying earlier, I think LA is one of those wonderful landscapes to escape into. Um, and I, I did more than my fair share <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of escaping and, you know, um, in, in, with, uh, you know, many different kinds of altered mindsets uh, you know, in, in, my, in my youth, um, and so it's you know it's 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 a wonderful you know I mean L.A. was a wonderful place to be a young person and uh, to you know just to experiment with uh, you know not only recreational drug use but also um, uh, you know identity you know I think it's a place where you can you, know, you can travel from one part of town to the next and uh, and discover something completely different about yourself. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, this book takes place at the intersection of the birth of modern Los Angeles and the birth of cinema. And it seems to me now, after reading your book, there are so many resonances between the two. Of course, both of them, both Los Angeles and cinema, began with first without any kind of reputation at all, and then with a sort of bad reputation, a low-class reputation. And they both became inescapable at a certain point. They both became uh, not omnipresent but they both became they both became entities that one cannot not be aware of i mean do you see cinema in los angeles as developing in parallel in that way you know but neither neither wholly escaped their reputation for neither wholly escaped the reputation of being a bit too new and a bit too formless but they both have achieved uh very very distinctive types of very specific, very distinctive types of respectability, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure how comfortable I feel about um, you know making big statements about uh, the evolution of the film industry because I'm you know I'm not I'm not a film historian and um, you know I I, I am uh, you know I mean I, I have uh, some very basic ideas to you know uh about that um 
But as far as far as LA goes, um, I I'm kind of I, I feel like there it's an incredibly unique place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, you know, I live in I live in Brooklyn. I I've, I've been away from LA now for um, for twenty years. And and maybe this is why I can kind of appreciate the city. Mm, yes, <laughs> I, you have I, to go I, away so from an A place to really appreciate it, don't you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I, I remember um, you know feeling that it, it 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 never did quite take the form and shape that I wanted it to take when I was living there. Which would be what um, form? Um, yeah, just a place that's. You know, easy to get around. You know, public <laughs> still transportation. It's and, coming along. You know, I, I just, I, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, because I'm, I'm a walker. I like to walk, and uh, you know, just walking on the streets of Los Angeles and wanting to just encounter another human being—that would have been nice. I can assure you, um, it's, it's improved now, but I don't know what it was like back then. So, we're, I, well, you know, back then, and there were certain neighborhoods you can go to. Like, you know, I mean, there was. Um, you know, uh, certain parts of uh, of um, Los Feliz, and uh, you know that you know Venice was always a fine place to to walk around. And um, yes, you know, indeed, it's, it's interesting of- because you mentioned at the beginning. Of course, Los Angeles is not mentioned by name in Mount Terminus. Certain locations are. Quite a few of those locations, it seemed to me, were downtown streets. This was an era when downtown was kind of the only part of Los Angeles there was. Now it's, you know, once again, very much a talked about part of Los Angeles. It, it has a lot of centricity back. When you were growing up, though, did you ever have to go downtown? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did go downtown. Really? I, I actually, I used to, well, I mean, when I was, um, when I was in my, Early twenties, I, uh, I I worked um, I worked downtown in the oh. gas company tower <laughs> for for I think three years. So going every day. Uh, so yeah, I was going every day. Um, I was living in Silver Lake at the time, and I I took the the number two bus down Sunset to you know to get to work. And now, were um, you there after hours as well, or was this a leave downtown at six sharp situation? Um, well, there was also a period of time that I was working at Gorky's restaurant. Oh, yes. Time. that's I, I, I love that you mentioned that because whenever anybody says, no, downtown, I was, I was in downtown, even, even in its emptiest days, they always have some Gorky's story. It's always about <laughs> exactly. Gorky's. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I would work at Gorky's late into the night and... Um, I, An occupation yeah, not so, without its risks, as I understand it. <laughs> the, there were some interesting moments, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, so it was it was really nice to uh, you know to to return to LA. I don't um, I don't know if you you've heard this, but when I was working on Mount Terminus, I uh, I found that my my trips to Los Angeles were interfering with this image I had of this empty space, and so I, I stopped visiting. Um, so I, I was, so I was away for, uh, for almost 10 years and, uh, I made my first trip back, um, when I was touring with the book, uh, first in March and then I was back at the LA Times Festival. Uh, and I was really kind of pleased to see the, the way downtown had developed, um, over those years. Uh, when I, when I was away, I was, I was kind of happy to see the concentration of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, just new businesses and um, uh, people walking their dogs on the street. Yeah, simple things. <laughs> you know, lots of restaurants uh, popping up, and um, yeah, I mean, I was I, I found it to be uh, to be really wonderful. There's this sense of places, the the version of a place you hold in your imagination, and you had the version of Los Angeles you needed to keep in your imagination during the. 11 years working on Mount Terminus. And I can understand why visiting the real Los Angeles, real, the, the Los Angeles in the 21st century, uh, would, would interfere with that, would get in the way, would corrupt the image you needed to maintain to work on the book. I wonder, do you do the same thing with other places? I mean, did you have a New York of the imagination that you had constructed before you went there? Um, well, my I mean, New York is uh, that's where I, w- I was born in New York, mm-hmm. and uh, and that, then I lived in New York when I was when I was a child. So, and then my family is uh, is new, you know is, is very New York. So, the, New York is a was always this very real place to me. Mm-hmm. But on a, I think on a you know a, a, every day, um, 
whenever we live in big cities, I think we tend to um, romanticize them in one way or another, and you know, create our own patterns of existence uh, that, that uh, are connected to those, um, you know, to those those ideas, uh, those those uh, those romantic ideas we have about a place. It's also a much romanticized time now, the early years of cinema. I mean, you have, you have an in Mount Terminus, you have Bloom sit down with, for example, you know, it's, 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 it's like a, an early, it's almost an early home entertainment system. Simon comes in with an actual projector to screen, to screen <laughs> him, say, A Voyage to the Moon, these early films in, in the estate, trying to sell him on the idea of working for his, his motion picture enterprise and it it made me realize why why that period would be sort of looked fondly upon by cinephiles now because this was a time when a film was so new when the motion picture was so new as a medium that it didn't really have a lot of established rules now as as just a film viewer yourself are you particularly interested in the the, the time when uh, we we didn't have when, when cliches when the cliches of film hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, I I, I was very excited about uh, this idea that um, it, it was a period when uh, there, there was invention um, uh, going on all the time. Um, you know, as you said, there were no rules or conventions. There there were these people who uh, were experimenting with what was seen as. Uh, it, as, as you know, as as little more than a toy. Mm. Um, in many ways, it reminds me of uh, this period of time we're living through um, with digital media. Um, you know, the, the the these you know there, there are just so many applications, or maybe it was maybe not at, at, you know exactly in the present, but you know in the, in the last ten years, there just seems to have been this proliferation of wonderful things one never ever thought about, you know, at, you know, at your disposal, at your, you know, right. in, in, in your hand, at your fingertips. Um, so there's, I'm, 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 I was very attracted to, um, you know, both to the, to the act of invention, um, uh, creating a visual language, uh, how the technology, um, uh, how the technology, uh, uh, you know, in, in helped um, bring out um, parts of uh, you know, say Bloom's imagination. It's it's ironic reading Mount Terminus. While I was reading Mount Terminus, this new novel that I was excited to read, I also ran across a recent article by I think Will Self that got sent around quite a lot among uh, readers of literary fiction. Anyways, his his point in the article was. The novel's dead. I know it's been said before, but now it's it's dead for sure. And I I realize you know that you can get a lot of clicks to articles by pronouncing a form dead, the novel or the, the or cinema or anything else. And people always talk about the death of forms, but I feel like now more than ever we should be hearing we should be seeing so many so many more celebrations, so many more heraldings of the birth of new forms. Right? Why does why do people not talk about the, why don't they herald the birth of new forms? It seems like cinema had to go a long way before anybody celebrated it. I, I yeah, I, I don't know the birth of new forms. Uh, are, are you talking about within cinema, or are you, are you um... anything? I mean, you, as you say, now with the with technology the way it is in the past ten, fifteen years, there has been a a new proliferation of just forms forms of art or whatever you want to call it you can experience but i still feel like people talk a lot more about right. what forms they think are dead than what ones that are, are clearly being born yeah no i mean i think that uh there are um well i, I mean i think that there needs to be some cooling off period with forms doesn't there i mean you it takes a while for you know the public to cotton on um, mm. you know, to new forms uh, before they feel comfortable with them. Or you know they they uh, I, I mean I still think that you know even though we're in this uh, you know this age of uh, small d democratization you know in the arts and in writing and uh, you know I, I still think that people you know do they have a tendency to look for reassurance from um, you know from the traditional gatekeepers you know to say that some form is 
uh, is enjoyable. Or <laughs> go ahead, you can enjoy this. <laughs> yes, go ahead, you can enjoy it, please. You it's know. anointed. <laughs> yes, um, at which point everyone, uh, you know, gets on the bandwagon and, um, you know, I guess... Uh, Forms a uh, a blog around it. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I mean, blog aside, is they is that what is that what happened with with cinema where it, it had to have this cooling off period? Is it this? Do you see? Do you, do you envision the same thing, the same process that happened to cinema where it gained acceptance with any of these new forms that may or may not be emerging today? Um, yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. I think that. Uh, you know, the cinema of that, of that, uh, of that era was, you know, it was incredibly crude. (laughs) Most, most of it. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it was the rare exception, um, that, uh, you know, that there was, there, there was a, uh, there was a short film, um, that, uh, you know, that, 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 that really touched people in a significant way. Um, and I, and I think that's, you know, I think that generally is what happens when new forms, uh, emerge. Um, when you can have, when, when you can in, truly engage with it, you know, as a human being and it can move you and, uh, you know, and, sh- and help shape the way you think and, uh, you know, alter your perception. I think that's when, uh, a new form really kind of takes root. Um, and, and I think we began to see that in, you know, in the teens with, and, you know, in the teens and the twenties, uh, with, with these silent films. Um, you know, there, there are just some really beautiful ones. Out there. It's, it's often, well, there's often a word applied to them, you know, that they are dreamlike. And I have so often read the Hollywood film industry called a dream factory. It's always those words, or especially in, in the first half of the 20th century, you know, the, the Los Angeles dream factory, the Hollywood dream factory. And I never, I, I always wondered why, I guess, it makes sense on some instinctive level to call it that, but I never really understood why, although reading Mount Terminus, I did realize, though in the first few decades of cinema, the films really were dreamlike, but I feel like at a certain point that no longer applies. I mean, they stopped, they stopped being like dreams, or did they? Do you think Dream Factory is still an applicable term for the film industry? Um, I- I suppose so. I mean, I maybe they're more lifelike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then again, I you know I somehow I think that they're this combination of both of mm. uh, of reality and life and fantasy, or, or maybe they're just bringing fantasy to life. Um, you know, I'm very uh, moved when I feel like I'm moving through space or time or. Um, uh, when I'm watching characters uh, melt so realistically in front of me, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's, I, I think we've gotten to the point where you, you know, that the that the the things that live inside of us, in the in both the darkest and brightest parts of us, uh, are, are you know are able to come to life through you know magic through tricks of the screen, uh, computer animation, and graphics and. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever these guys have in their bag of tricks. Mm. Um, so yes, it is a dream factory. No, it's, uh, you know, oftentimes it resembles life. I, I'm not quite sure I know exactly how to answer that question, but I do believe that at that time, um, you know, I mean, motion pictures were truly a phenomenon. I mean, the, the, I mean, one thing that I that discovered when I was doing my research um, was that, you know, human beings for for a long time had a tendency to that they they enjoyed gathering in in dark places uh, um, and um, you know experiencing some form of life on the screen. Mm. Uh, you know, in, in the novel, I, the, 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 I do use the the real name of uh, of this historical figure, Etienne Gaspard, who um, who used to uh, gather big crowds and they would congregate in uh, in cathedrals, and he would put on these magic lantern shows that that really did resemble um, modern day cinema. They would you know project images. They were still images, but they had minstrels and they had a narrator. Um, and this was in the uh, in in the 1700s. So there's um, you know, and then if you kind of go back deeper into history, we have you know shadow puppets and 
<laughs> you know, we have, uh, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave. Um, so that there's, there, there, there's really sort of, uh, nothing new about, uh, the idea of the, of the dream factory, um, of, uh, of our tendency to want to collectively dream. And there is something particularly fascinating now that I think about it, about the way that cinema has always, has always mixed or has always found a way to bolt together, shall we say, elements of real life and elements of fantasy or, I mean, I guess myth is maybe a better word for it. Because uh, I was thinking about, as we mentioned, the use, uh, the importance of water in Mount Terminus because Bloom's brother Simon, the mogul, wants to not just build the film industry, he wants to build Los Angeles and he needs to get some water to do that. He needs to find a way to bring water down to uh, to irrigate what needs to be irrigated to get plumbing where that needs to go. And, of course, it's going to remind anybody who reads it of um, of a motion picture of, of Chinatown, uh, which also uses the story of how Los, how Los Angeles got the water it's needed in a way that is not really adherent to history, but it uses it in, it uses it to forge its own myth. What's, what is so appealing about the history, Los Angeles's history with water, Southern California's history with water? What's so appealing about that to, as, as a sort of tool to, uh, to, to forge myths of one's own? Building a city where a city shouldn't be is, is sort of, you know, kind of mythological in, in the, you know, in the truest sense. Um, uh, I mean, I think what, uh, what William Mulholland did by you know, building that aqueduct and bringing water to Los Angeles to a, you know, to an arid coastal desert region was, um, was superhuman in, in so many ways. And, uh, you know, and of course he, he paid for that later on um, in his life. Uh, that 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 hubris nearly destroyed him. Mm. Um, so I mean, just that there is that that sort of superhuman feat to you know creating something in a place that shouldn't be you know, really created. Um, and I and I think that is you know part of the reason why I was uh, you know, attracted to you know, telling that part of the story. Um, but I, I mean, I, I'm also very interested in the, um, the, the artificial nature of that type of city, um, you know, sort of growing a city from whole cloth. I mean, it's something that we, I guess, see pretty regularly now in places like Las Vegas. (laughs) Yes, indeed. They've grown used to it. (laughs) You know, I mean, so, you know, just, you you were talking about, uh, you know, LA boosters and, uh, you know, that, 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 that period of boom, um, you know, and constructing, uh, a place mostly from the imagination. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, in what goes into manufacturing a world like, uh, like that. And I don't, and I don't see it being, you know, all that different from the type of worlds that are manufactured, you know, in, um, in the motion picture industry. But somehow I see the two of them being uh, very much related. Exactly. We've grown so used to both of them that we just take it for granted that, of course, a city like Los Angeles can exist because it existed before I got here. And, of course, right. motion pictures exist and feel real because they were doing that before I got here. But, you know, they involved, uh, they involved these types of water schemes. They involved these types of Rosenblum drives. You know, is there some sense in which you want to make surprising again these, 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 near mythological achievements that preceded us? Um, yeah, I mean, I did want to focus some attention on the, you know, on the, on the, on the, on the excitement of, uh, you know, of that moment. Um, uh, and to write it in such a way that, I don't know, I think, I think we, it's just so easy for us to, you know, take these historical moments for granted. And I'm, you know, I'm hoping that I, uh, that I wrote about the birth of that technology in such a way that it, you know, it gives you a little bit of a tingle and says, uh, you, you, and you can kind of say to yourself, oh, yeah, that's, that's why, you know, this was so groundbreaking. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and the same applies to, um, you know, to that monumental feat of, of bringing water to the desert to, you know, to grow a city and attract people. Now, Bloom, as we say, he's, he's, not about to. He's certainly not the one in the family who founds cities, who founds industries. He, as we say, 
spends a lot of his early life in a, in a kind of isolation. He later wishes for more isolation still. He fantasizes about scenarios where he's more removed from society, just surrounded by three or four of his closest people, and the walls are put up. And thinking back to your first novel, Laos, which has a reclusive, wealthy man who has made his own rules at its core, who's made a very specific system of rules. You know, when you're thinking about history, do you does your imagination get drawn to the the his history is people of means who can set themselves apart, literally who can literally take themselves out of society? <laughs> is that process in and of itself fascinating to you? Um Yes, I, I, you know, I, I definitely, um, uh, you know, have a thing for, you know, the Charles Foster Keynes of the world. You know, mm. I'm, I'm very much attracted to the to those kinds of figures. You know, to the Howard Hughes's, um, to uh, you know, figures like Mulholland and uh, and Goldwyn. You know, these, these, but but I'm I'm I mean, but but if we're talking about the um, you know, if we're talking about Laos, uh, you know, I mean, I was just fascinated by, um, by Hughes. Uh, mm. the, the, you know, I, I didn't, when I first started writing that novel, I knew very little about Howard Hughes. And one of the first things that I learned about him, um, I think I went to the Beverly Hills Public Library and, uh, and checked out the, um, the, you know, the controversial book about Hughes, written by was it Clifford Irving? I'm, 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 I think I think I'm, that's it. But it's that, in any yeah. case, yes, that there there is a, there is a controversial book about him, and that was your first right. your first source. Yes, that so that was my first source, and the, you know the thing that I went directly to were you know were these extensive memos he wrote uh, to his Mormon valets um, and uh, about. Uh, uh, what one must do when um, when opening a can of peaches, <laughs> and then the memo went on for you know for pages and pages, and I was just I was just so fascinated by that by the, you know that obsessive compulsive um, state of mind, and then when I started reading deeper into his story, uh, and I. Um, and I became familiar with his, with you know, the the amount of history his life touched upon, and how significant he was, uh, you know, for better or worse, <laughs> you know, <laughs> within that history. I just thought, you know, I don't care if uh, you know if he's a figure people have written about in the past. I, you know, I, I want to write about this guy, but not uh, from his point of view, but from the uh, point of view of his uh, of his manservant. It sometimes takes, I mean, it, I don't want to say it takes no more than this, but getting, getting an unconventional point of view on something, on something often written about, I mean, in, in, the, in the disappearing body, like, like the Los Angeles that is not named Los Angeles of Mount Terminus, there you're, you're using a New York that is not named New York. I mean, how, how else, when you're thinking about a city like New York, how, how else to, how else to get a, Get an, a perspective that sets that is set enough apart to not repeat what's been said. I mean, if we're talking about written about cities, New York must rank very, very high. Uh, yes, and um, yeah. I mean, I think the New York of, of that novel, as I said earlier, I you know, I mean, I, I see, you know, I see this the, this trio of novels as uh, you know as, as kind of emerging out of that backlog that I was talking about. Oh uh, yes, <laughs> um, you know, and. And I mean, the disappear, disappearing body is—it's it's a very strange novel in in, in many regards um, because I I was determined to you know take the New York of uh, you know of the 1930s um, as I thought of New York from watching new you know films set in new york in that period and probably in the 40s you know mm. a lot of a lot of the the noir set in new york and then i also wanted to construct it as you know as sort of like a 19th century social novel mm. um as well as you know uh some like and I, and I wanted it to come off like a bit of a robert altman film because there are you know i don't know how many characters there are in that novel um so the, it, it it was a <laughs> it was a big ambitious uh, attempt to um, you know, to capture the 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 vibrant life of New York that that I'm 
you know, that I, that I experience uh, every day at the same time. Um, you know, though there were these other factors um, uh, uh, going into the equation as well. It certainly is ambitious, and of course, Mount Terminus is ambitious, more ambitious even, in a completely different way. I mean, it's, it's much written about, and everybody mentions, I've already said it once, the book was 11 years in the making, and I want to get a sense of what, because, because I can't think of another form that one can spend 11 years on in that way. If you spend 11 years making a movie, you know, you're officially an eccentric <laughs> if you're a director who's doing that. Or if you're spending 11 years recording an album, you know, that's even, even I think that, uh, that I think of, I don't know why this is the, this is the one that comes to mind, but you know, the, the Guns N' Roses album everybody waited for for a long time. I mean, they started mm-hmm. thinking of Axl Rose as crazy for that and other reasons. But a novelist can spend 11 years and not uh, and, and it's it's almost it's it, people will always admire that it seems like well he's, he's put, he certainly put the time in tell me what what uh, or they can just you know think that you know you're crazy <laughs> <laughs> but do that does that happen i feel like novelists don't get thought of as crazy for spending 11 years like a novel especially one i mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll put it this way. No, I, 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 no, I, I, I under, I'm, I'm just joking. I, I, I understand <laughs> exactly what you're saying. Um, well, Mount Terminus was certainly a, it was a big, big departure for me. Um, you know, I was determined to write a lyrical novel, <laughs> um, dense, multi-layered. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the, the language. I wanted the, the language to, um, to resonate on the page, uh, I wanted every sentence to um, uh, to be what I considered uh, uh, rhythmic and you know pulsating with life. Um, and I, you know, I, I really didn't know how to do that. Um, you know, as, as you know, we've been we've been talking about Laos and the disappearing body. The you know the styles are you know drastically different. Um, and the sensibility that I that I brought to both of those books, uh, you know, was very different. And as we've been um, saying, uh, you know, I was uh, surrounded by um, you know silence and pristine landscapes, and you know, in this world of Mount Terminus. And you know, the the the, the big challenge for me was uh, was you know this sort of sustaining Bloom's interest in the natural world and the. Uh, you know the, the villa in which he and his father live. Um, the uh, you know the, focusing on these on these minute aspects of of of, of his life, um, and so you know sort of trying to sustain that was really challenging. And so I would I would go in uh, every day, and I would you know I would diligently write my my two three four pages, um, and uh, then the following day I would go in and I would. Uh, you know, revise those pages to about, uh, you know, two or three sentences. So it was an act of condensation every day. Yes. It was very strong condensation as well. Yeah. So it was this act of condensation. And, and then unlike, uh, my two previous novels, when I got stuck in the story and didn't know where I was going, um, you know, oftentimes I would sort of just write through that and I would force myself to write through it until the right thing occurred to me. And when that happened, I would just, uh, step away and take a long walk mm. <laughs> and, and wait and wait until, you know, <laughs> until, the, until the right image or the, you know, the, the, the right, um, uh, the right words would would occur to me. Um, I just I just became very patient with uh, you know with this process, and it became a form of meditation. Um, it's funny when I you know when I got to the end of the process, and my uh, my my editor said, "Okay, I think that's enough." <laughs> <laughs> that's what he said. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I kind of, I, I started to panic, you know, uh-huh. I mean, because I, I'd been living in this space. I would wake up every morning in Brooklyn and there I would be, uh, in, in the hills of Southern California. And it became this, uh, incredibly, um, beautiful place in my mind that I, that I really enjoyed going to. Uh, and so when, you know, just, <laughs> just the mere suggestion of it being over, uh, it kind of sent me into a panic. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'd fallen in love with the bloom. I'd fallen in love with the with the landscape, with even the changing landscape. 
um, with the just I'd fallen in love with the the complications between Bloom and Simon, and was always trying to reconfigure their relationship to you know to make it. Uh, uh, to make it more tense or to diminish the tension or <laughs> whatever. Um, so I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I imagine that this is the kind of thing that, that happens to mathematicians when they're, um, you know, when they're trying to solve a, a really complicated equation. Mm. <laughs> you know? it's, it sounds like the, the, the very same form of overcoming that, the, that they talk about. But this idea that you got hooked on on your own landscape here, your own Southern Californian pre-Los Angeles, Los Angeles landscape. You know, it, what, There's a movie that Bloom works on for much of the book, much of the later part of the book, um, based upon a, uh, a, a grim story he finds evidence of right below his feet uh, where he's living. Uh, now, was that... Was I, was it the death of paradise or the murder of paradise? This movie was called. Right, it's the the death of paradise. The death, the death of paradise, and you know, reading that title, of course, any anybody who's been reading a lot about Los Angeles uh, will think of this standard narrative about Los Angeles that oh, the Los Angeles was Arcadian, it was paradisical, and uh, it only took mankind to come in and cause its death to murder. You know, there's there's this post Edenic. Uh, way Los Angeles is described by many, not everybody, but you know, I I can't help but wonder if that Edenic Los Angeles is. I mean, because it's now out of living memory, essentially. Is this something we're all just imagining now? Is that Los Angeles we describe as once real, now ruined, also a Los Angeles of our imaginations? Um, well, uh, just to be clear, I, you know, the, you know, the death of the, the death of, you know, the, the death of paradise in, in the novel. I mean, I, I always intended that to be the death of Bloom's paradise. Yes, um, indeed. So, and he has a very specific so, paradise indeed. Right. So, um, you know, I, yes, I, I mean, I suppose that it, you know, it's inevitable that that idea is going to resonate outward into the city itself. Um, so is Los Angeles, um, I, you know, I, I, I think I would, I'm going to stick to, to this answer that, uh, uh, that Los Angeles, uh, has always been this artificial construct and, mm. uh, whatever idea of paradise one brings to it is, um, you know, is a fantasy. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a fantasy and... It's also there's it's a fan, it's a fantasy supported by a kind of mythology and I I'm thinking more about the the we talked about the language of Mount Terminus and the time spent on the language and the sense in which I do, do you think that the sheer amount of time spent on the novel or rather the fact that you're working on the novel over a, a relatively long period of time that seems to it seems to lend a timelessness to the language. It seems to make it, and I, when I say a timelessness, I feel like when I talk about timeless language, that is that is the language of myth. There's a mythical feeling to the book itself. Is Was that a, was that a goal for you, in any sense at all, to, to use the language, the language of myth in Mount Terminus? A language, the language that sounds like the telling of a myth, of a sort of grand myth, no, no pun intended. It was intentional, and uh, there's, there's the language of myth, and there's also most certainly, um, you know, the cadences of uh, of biblical language, um, you know, built into into the text. Um, and I did want to, you know, speak to some kind of both universal truth and. Um, and 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 build a place uh, in which these um, these big events could take place. Los Angeles is a place that seems to, I would say, enjoys its founding myths, but it's a place where myths or even degraded versions of myths, uh, rumors, and stereotypes stick with uh, stick. W- they stick in an unchallenged way. It's, it's just, 
anything said about Los Angeles seems to stick to it. And in a way, it's, it's a city that has always, that is always in search of, uh, higher quality founding myths. I, th- I think that, do you think that if this, if, if the events of Mount Terminus, could the events of Mount Terminus indeed have been the, have been the, uh, real events that preceded modern Los Angeles, of course, it's not true history. Of course, it is its own world. Of course, things, plenty of things happen uh, on, right. on a scale and in a way they didn't happen in real life. But I feel like the real Los Angeles could have resulted out of all this. It's, it seems in that sense plausible, yet also mythological. Does that make any right. sense whatsoever? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I mean, I do think that... I do think that uh, the you know some of the the, the the history and some of the history in the book is you know is, is very real I yes. mean there was this there was this migration of uh, Jewish theatrical talent from the east to the west uh, at around that time um, you, know, you had these itinerant filmmakers uh, uh, kind of chasing the sun um, as it were um, and and they ended up uh, in in Southern California for the light. Uh, you did have William Mulholland, um, you know, bring water from the Owens River Valley to uh, to irrigate uh, fields and feed water into plumbing, um, you know, to support a larger population. And you know, all of these things they 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 happen simultaneously. Um, and uh, and it and that region of the world it was uh, you know it was a certain kind of paradise for. Uh, for indigenous people for, you know, for many years. Um, so yes, there are, you know, there all of those elements of the story, um, you know, they, they, they are true and they, you know, and they, you know, they are plausible, uh, when thinking about, uh, uh, the origin of the city. Um, and then there's Bloom <laughs> and he is the Indeed. filter uh, through which the story is uh, is told. Um, and having asked about what uh, what what remained between or what you see as having remained from the Los Angeles of Mount Terminus, the Los Angeles of your own childhood, and what carries over to the Los Angeles today, I wonder when you're out at the movies today, what in what in cinema, what about cinema, is recognizably descended from the cinema of Bloom's time, of Mount Terminus's time, of those experimental days before cinema had become cinema. What, uh, what, uh, we're not using, presumably, we're not using the equivalence of Rosenblum drives anymore, it's all digital, but, you know, what, what about cinema is, is clearly, is there a through, is there a clear through line to the cinema of Mount Terminus? Um... I don't know. Ah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean that's a, that's a question. I, I I mean I haven't really um, I haven't thought about, and I'm trying to come up with an answer for you, but I, I just don't quite. Well, there may be nothing. There may may be. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yes, anything. maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's completely different than that than that early form. It's it's uh, it has nothing in common with the. Uh, I mean, certainly. I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I still. I still get very excited um, walking into uh, you know into a proper movie theater. Yes, of course. <laughs> into a movie palace, as it were, um, waiting for the uh, the coming attractions, which I don't think they necessarily had in uh, Bloomsday. Um, but uh, just that I, I don't know that 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 cool, almost sacred space of um, you know of of a of a movie theater. Um, I. I, I you know, when I was a kid, I um, I lived in in first in Westwood and then West LA. And when I was a kid in Westwood, I, I mean, I don't know how many screens there were uh, nearby. There must have been, you know, thirty some odd screens. Yeah, I've heard Westwood had like thirty five movie screens some, in those days. Exactly. Um, and so I would go to the movies uh, at least four times a week, and sometimes mm. I would, you know, sit through the same movie twice. Um, and I just loved the escape of walking into a movie theater. I think that will never change. I think it does <laughs> you know, remain, especially you're in, you're talking from New York. I'm talking obviously from Los Angeles. We're living in the last maybe two cities in the U.S. where there are a number of, as you say, proper movie theaters. Are we not? 
Right. Um, and, you know, I think they're diminishing in, in New York. Um, I, you know, I think Los Angeles is, uh, as it, it, I mean, they they don't treat their historic buildings well, but they do treat their movie theaters <laughs> very well. That's, that's something in any case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so there's uh, there's nothing like going to the movies in L.A. Indeed. I've been speaking on the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast with David Grand, the author of the new Mount Terminus, as well as the novels Laos and The Disappearing Body. David, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I've been Colin Marshall. Once again, this has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Keep up with me at colinmarshall.org and the LARB at lareviewofbooks.com. Thanks. <laughs>